Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Monday, November 27th. Amanda Borchel, Dan here with reporter Kanan Lidor and legal correspondent Jeremy Sharon. Hello to you both. Good morning. Hey, Amanda. Good morning. A third group of hostages was released last night. We'll hear about the reception from their home communities now transplanted to hotels throughout the country. Jeremy will explain how Israel is planning on prosecuting terrorists captured on October 7th. And Kanan was also recently on the northern border in a settlement close, but not quite close enough to the fighting there. All this and more when we're back. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Four-year-old Avigal Idan, whose parents Roy and Smadar were murdered. Hagar Broduch, with her three children Ofri, Yuval, and Oria. Chen Goldstein Almog, and three of her four children, Agam, Gal, and Tal. Husband Nadav and daughter Yam were murdered. Sisters Ella and Daphna Eliakim, father Dror, and his partner Dikla were murdered. Elma Avraham, now in critical condition in a hospital. Aviva Siegel, but not her husband, Keith, a U.S. citizen, and Roni Krivoy, a surprise release. On day three of the hostage release, nine children, two mothers, two more women, and one man, three Thai nationals were released in a separate deal. Another 11 names have been delivered to Israel as of this morning, but we have no further details to report. Kanan, you've now twice joined communities as their friends and family and neighbors have been released. Tell us about the feeling as the names are officially confirmed. In some places, uh, like Shfaim, where Kfar Aza is staying, there are spontaneous eruptions of joy, but the places I've been, actually the response was much more conflicted, much more subtle. That's natural considering that, that many of the, of, the, of the people who are being released, as you just noted, uh, have had people close to them murdered uh, and, or are still missing. But it goes beyond that. These are people who have lived for years and decades uh, as Hamas's neighbors, they know this the cruelty of this organization, and they just hate being in this position of weakness, in which they are they are they know that they are being used as pawns in the hands of Hamas, and it just it reached some sort of peak in that delay on Saturday night with the release of that group 
of hostages where there was just this um, bubbling anger, but the determination to grit their teeth and and go on because they keep their their mind on the goal, which is the children, the people close to them, but they hate being there like puppets on a string. And I spoke yesterday to one person, Nadav Peretz, who happens to be in in normal times the growth officer of uh, of Nachal Oz, uh, and now he's of course uh, just uh, taking care of the families of the of the people who who are have people missing and and have lost uh loved ones uh and he says that he keeps his mind another long-term goal which is he thinks nachaloz will double his population within the next five years so he's focusing on that I don't actually doubt that. And I know a lot of Israelis who are planning on uprooting their lives and moving towards the Gaza envelope area. But I wonder how they're feeling right now. They're, that particular community, Nachal Oz, where you were last night, is now in Mishmara Emek. What, what is their setup there? What is their situation? An unusual one. It's a kibbutz within a kibbutz. And so they have a, a part of the kibbutz that's sectioned off. Uh, just just for for their for their needs, they have their own school, uh, and and that helps enormously. They have their own situation room where uh, the people who have responsibilities in kibbutz Nachal Oz coordinate with the army on what houses to garrison, how many soldiers in. Um, that gives them a feeling of control. It gives them a feeling. It, it just expedites, uh, as far as I've seen. The, the the process of, of rerouting. And what did you see on Friday night in Tel Aviv at Hostage Squares, we're now calling the area where you were? Over there, this was the first group of, uh, of hostages released. Uh, just a, a tense, tense period of waiting and then uh, spontaneous dances and, and, and cheers and uh, hugs. A thing we haven't seen on that square since the fighting started and actually at um at the rally the following day on saturday one of the speakers uh, i I, f- I forget the name um actually asked for them for, for such displays to stop because he found it inappropriate he, he said it's it's natural but this is not a time for for jubilation and still uh we saw the same reaction and shfaim to Kfar Aza, it's, it's perhaps inevitable. As one Holocaust survivor once told me, all Jews have two eyes. One eye is laughing and one eye is crying, always. Jeremy, yesterday you were at the Dead Sea and you spoke with a grandfather of two of the released hostages, and he too was putting on a brave face, though his daughter, Yonat Or, was murdered on that day. What did he say to you? So yeah, like you said, uh, Hananel Besorai, uh, he's the 89-year-old um, father of a uh, grandfather of Alma and Noam Or, and like you said, he was putting on a brave face. He was smiling. He was he was happy. Obviously, he was very happy that uh, his two grandchildren had been uh, had been released. But you know, he also has this internal pain, like like Hanan was saying. There's you know a real contradiction in in these deep emotions with on the one hand this the the joy of having you know these loved ones uh, released from from you know uh, what is can only be an unimaginable captivity in gaza and and having them returned to their families and on the other hand uh, Hananel's uh, daughter was was murdered he seemed 
happy and, and jovial almost. He, his family is Yemenite, and he was originally from Yemen. And he was, yeah, he was making jokes in Yiddish. And I was embarrassed being an Ashkenazi person. My Yiddish is terrible. And, and he was uh, showing up my terrible lack of Yiddish. And, and he was in, in, in such a good mood. And I said, how come you, your spirits are so high? So he said, you know, outwardly, I'm smiling. And in, inside, I'm full of pain. And, and along with that, you know, he said that he's, he's going to go and see his two grandchildren today, actually, in Tel Aviv. And, and have that, that rejoicing uh, when, when they meet up again. But tomorrow uh, they're going to go and visit um, his daughter's grave and, and their mother's grave uh, together. And so that's, that's this um, severe, like I said, contradiction of emotions which, which uh, these people are going through. We'll go to a short break. You're listening to this podcast. So I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines massacre in Gaza, genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning, without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're back. Jeremy, now with your legal reporter hat, Israeli security forces captured several dozen of the 3,000 terrorists involved in the atrocities on October 7th. They are now detained. They're in prisons here in Israel. What is Israel planning to do with them? Right. So we think there's around about 120 uh, of these uh, Hamas terrorists who, who participated in the atrocities of October 7th. And th- the question is what framework they should be tried in and and what charges that can be brought against them. So there's three basic options uh, for how to try them. But I think only one is, is really realistic. There's the possibility of just holding them in, in, in some kind of ongoing detention without putting them on trial. And that would help um, in terms of if there was ever a, a need to release them, although politically that would seem to be very difficult. Um, and also with, without tr- putting them on trial, that would be uh, legally problematic and, and, and kind of uh, reduce Israel's legitimacy. The other option is to put them in, in, try them in a military courts, which often happens with Palestinian terrorists. But again, that would, that would detract from the legitimacy of, the, of that process. And so I think the most likely option is to have a regular civil court try them, in which case that would be the Beersheba District Court. There was there was talk of having special courts to put these people on trial. But I think that the fact that they committed these crimes on Israeli soil and that the fact that they're in Israeli hands um, means that we're likely to see them put on trial, like I said, in the Beersheba District Court. So, so what can they be tried with? The most severe charge which, which we have on, on the Israeli law books is the child, charge of genocide. And the truth is that, as according to several scholars, it looks like that what these people did on October 7th does, in fact, fit the charge of genocide. They 
they came across the border, 3,000 or so terrorists came across the border and tried to kill intentionally a specific group or part of a specific group, i.e. Jewish Israelis. And that is the definition of genocide. Uh, the problem is, is that it's very, very hard to prosecute foot soldiers of genocidal activities. It's hard to prove that they were part of this overall overarching genocidal effort. And it's much easier when you have the leaders to say that this was, this was part of their plan and this is what they deployed their forces to do. So even though the, the atrocities they committed, and we, you know, without uh, going into, into the details again, talking about mass murder, mass sexual crimes, torture, the murder of uh, children, elderly, and all, all civilians, you know, men and women. So these are really uh, appalling atrocities, and, and they do fit the crime of genocide. But because of the difficulty of, of proving that against these foot soldiers, we're, it's likely that we'll see slightly lesser charges against them, such as um, mass uh, murder within the framework of terrorism, uh, rape and sexual assault within the framework of terrorism. And one other charge, an important charge, is assisting the enemy in times of war. So assisting the enemy of times of war, that is a very severe crime and that can be punished with either the death penalty or uh, life imprisonment. And the rest of those crimes I mentioned are also punishable by uh, life in prison or, or lengthy prison sentences. I think in terms of seeking the death penalty, there's a real problem with that right now because Israel still has dozens of hostages in Gaza. So if there was any attempt to give them the death penalty, that could have very serious ramifications for our hostages. And the other, the other issue with the death penalty is that, um, I mean, Israel's only ever executed one person before. That was Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi war criminal. And a further problem is that the Supreme Court, if petitioned, may deem uh, the death penalty to not be commensurate with Israel's uh, basic law for human dignity and liberty. So I think most likely what we'll see is, as I said, these charges of mass murder and other crimes within the framework of, of terrorism brought against these 120 or so uh, Hamas terrorists. And we're likely looking at um, life imprisonment sentences uh, for them. But obviously, you know, this whole process, I think, of putting them on trial, uh, of having um, witnesses come and testify against them, it's, that's going to be a way for, for the country to process and, and come to terms with this awful attack. Jeremy, thank you for that. Kanan, you were recently in Abirim, which is a village in the Western Galilee. And actually, I sent you there. I asked you to go there because my son was there and told me that there's quite the story going on with its residents. So tell us, what is the scoop? So first of all, Amanda, thanks for the welcoming party that I received. I was pulled off the bus, interrogated, questions almost frisked, because Abirim is actually quasi a military, a uh, closed military zone. Uh, and that's because of its proximity to the border. It's about five kilometers to the border with Hezbollah. There is a platoon of tanks, which means several tanks, Merkava tanks, outside the the uh, 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 village. <clears throat> and uh, the village only has one exit and an entry point, which is why it's so heavily secured. No, really, I just told them you were coming and they did that special for you, Kanan. I assumed as much. And so uh, because of this because of this situation and because of the constant trickle of Hezbollah uh, rockets, missiles, etc., uh, the, the government on October 18 included Abirim uh, in a list of several towns, Motsu Mushavim and Kibbutzim, that it said should be evacuated um, 
all the schools are shut. There's no kupat cholim. There's no clinic. There's no postal services. War zone. And yet, in several of these um, small locales, Abirim is one, Avadon, uh, Granota, Galil, uh, the, the, the evacuation didn't really take place. And evacuation means it comes with certain benefits. It means that the residents can move to government-afforded housing somewhere uh, safer. Uh, at first, there was some sort of um, haphazard uh, attempt to, to house them in, in hotels with some donor money. Uh, then they had to go back. There was a bit of a mess, people with, with children. Then they were offered to stay in Tel Aviv, which for children with anxiety is also very problematic because there are constant siren warnings. Uh, And so about 80 of Abirim's 300 residents are staying there for lack of a better alternative, including people with small children. I spoke to one of them, Racheli Hefer, and her daughter uh, Shira, four years old, uh, special needs, can't be moved around her brief two weeks in a hotel were uh, uh, a nightmare of a constant hysteria, her mother said, and she had to be brought back to a place where actually our government and army say civilians have no business being in. Kanan, really chilling stuff, what you're saying. Kanan, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have questions or comments about this or other episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. Shalom.